On April 10th, Joseph Curtitone, Mayor of Somerville, Massachusetts, Brad Lander, Council Member of New York City, and Holly Rusan Gilman of the Ash Center discussed innovative ways New York City and Somerville are reinventing urban democracy. This seminar was co-sponsored by the Regional, State, Local, and Tribal Governance Public Interest Council and was part of the Democracy Seminar Series, sponsored by the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School. The topic of today's discussion is urban democracy and local civic engagement. Uh, the relationship between cities and democracy is, of course, an ancient one. The very word citizen means uh, resident of a city, inhabitant of a city. Uh, for most of the history of democracy, democracy was a form of government for cities, from the Athenian city-state to the New England town meetings. For centuries, until the invention of representative government, a scant 200 years ago, it was thought that democracy could only occur in cities. Uh, in a very famous essay that I guess is probably 40 years ago now, a uh, political science professor named Robert Dahl was talking about the right scale for democracy. And his puzzle was this. You want democracy to be big enough so that the area you cover is actually controls important decisions to your life. So global warming, decisions about global warming would have to, the democracy would be the whole world. So that weighs, that consideration weighs in favor of bigger and bigger democracies. But on the other hand, he said, well, the reason that democracy is worth having in the first place is so that individuals can exercise some voice. And that weighs in favor of smaller and smaller units of democracy, maybe if in a world of neighborhood democracy would be best from that perspective because you could actually see the results of your discussions and opinions and preferences there. And he finally settled after kind of going back and forth on the city as the ideal size of for a democracy. Um, democracy and participation have been in eclipse in cities from the 1970s to the 1990s roughly. But recently, there's been a kind of rebirth of urban democracy. We see this in experiments in neighborhood government, in local control and participation in city services, such as community policing and parental involvement and even control of schools. But the most far-reaching innovations in urban participatory democracy come not from American cities, but from Latin America. Probably the, most, uh, the deepest, most notable form of participatory democracy in the urban context is participatory budgeting, which was born in a city called Porto Alegre in the southern state of Rio Grande do Sul in Brazil. In that city of 1.3 million people, uh, beginning in the late 1990s, or the uh, early 1990s, um, the PT, the Workers' Party there, won control of the mayor's office, of the executive, on the promise that if you elect us, we will let you decide what happens to the city budget. And they made good on that promise by establishing a system which has been in a place in Porto Alegre ever since, in which people in neighborhoods get together and decide where the capital portion of the city budget could go, should go, about 10% of the city's budget. So if you're in a neighborhood there, you can say, well, in our neighborhood, the first priority is electrification, and then the next priority is a community center, and then we want sidewalks and paving. And then if you can get enough people in the neighborhood to agree with your view and your schedule of priorities, 
That's where the money for your neighborhood is going to go. It's a radical idea. Let the people decide where the money goes. And this idea has spread throughout hundreds of cities in Latin America and indeed all over the world. Um, and uh, a little bit of a latecomer, but it's also come recently to the United States. First uh, to a ward in Chicago and uh, a little bit later, just a little bit later, to uh, uh, several districts in New York City. And so today we're here to explore the possibilities of forms of uh, democratic engagement and civic engagement in cities. Uh, we have uh, excellent people here to discuss this topic. Uh, this time from the world of practice, usually the ASH seminars are professors like me. Today we have people who've actually done it rather than people who've thought about it some and maybe studied a little. Uh, and so we're de delighted to, to welcome, uh, first of all, Councilman Brad Lander. He represents the 39th District in New York City, and he's been in the City Council since 2009. He entered politics from experience as a community organizer, and Lander is co-chair of the Council's Progressive Caucus, which fights for good jobs, equitable development, and investments in public schools, transportation, and the social safety net. He's fought successfully to hold banks accountable to communities, to protect manufacturing jobs in New York City, and to stop tax breaks for the wealth, very wealthy, and to increase uh, and to stop tax funding cuts to schools, firehouses, parks, libraries, and daycare centers. Uh, prior to serving in City Council, uh, Councilman Lander directed the Pratt Center for Community uh, Development and the Fifth Avenue Commu Committee. At Pratt, he led many successful community planning efforts, as well as campaigns to expand affordable housing and create New York City's inclusionary zoning program which requires developers uh, seeking tax breaks to set aside 20% of units for low and moderate income families and pay a, pay a living wage to their service uh, workers, which must be a large number in New York City, a living wage. Uh, in 2010, Councilman Lander decided to pursue participatory budgeting in the 39th district. He pledged his discretionary funds. Uh, council members in New York City control discretionary pots of money. And uh, in 2010, Councilman Lander pledged $1 million to allow residents to decide where to invest his discretionary money instead of him deciding, as is the standard practice. And so today we're going to hear how that went. Uh, our second speaker is, uh, of course, Mayor uh, Joseph Curtitone of Somerville, Massachusetts. He was first elected uh, uh, to that office in 2003 when he was a young, young 38 years old. Under his watch, Somerville has seen dramatic improvements in public management, city services, public health, economic development, and quality of life. I was born in Somerville a few years before <laughs> Mayor Curtitone became mayor, uh, and it was not the place <laughs> that it is today. Um, I never called it this, but some people called it Slummerville. No one calls it that anymore. His achievements have been widely recognized. Somerville was designated as the best-run uh, best city in Massachusetts by the Boston Globe, and it was a winner in 2009 of the All-American City Comp Competition. His success in Somerville has earned him the presidency uh, of the Massachusetts Mayor's Association, a position on the board of directors of the National League of Cities, and uh, he is a member of the Metropolitan Mayor's Association. He's a 1984 graduate of Somerville High School, earned his BA in Boston College, and a JD from the New England School of Law in 1994. What's not on the Somerville website bio, however, is that he completed his master's in public administration 
at the Harvard Kennedy School in 2011. I think it may be a little bit of an embarrassment to you, but I thought I'd share that with folks here um, in any case. Uh, if it's an, whether or not it's an embarrassment to Mayor Kurt Atone, it's uh, an honor for us, for him to be an alumni of this institution. Much to our benefit, he has continued to work closely with various Kennedy School faculty on issues such as finance and budgeting and service improvements. Mayor Kurt Atone will share with us his thoughts, experiences, and perhaps some uh, plans looking forward to deepen participation and public engagement in Somerville. Uh, finally, Holly Rusan-Gilman will comment briefly on the two presentations. She's currently an Ash Center Democracy Fellow. She uh, completed her dissertation in the Department of Government at Harvard University last year, and she's conducted extensive field research into the first two cases of participatory budgeting in the United States, that is in New York and in Chicago. Based on these experiences, she argues that we should value institutions like participatory budgeting as much for the, way that, the ways in which they allow citizens to participate in democratic life, that is to be citizens, as for their instrumental benefits in producing better uh, and higher quality projects and so on. Finally, um, I want to thank Hannah Weinstock. Where's Hannah? Hannah Weinstock, who is currently uh, in the master's degree program here at the Kennedy School. This event was her brainchild, and she did an enormous amount of the heavy lifting to make this possible. Thank you. So without further ado, Councilman Lander. Thank you uh, very much. It's great uh, to be here um, and nice to have a, a chance to step back. And I'm interested in hearing in the discussion what people uh, are thinking who are doing a little more of the thinking and reflecting about this, because it definitely is true that uh, kind of once you're in up to your elbows, it's sometimes hard to sort of step back and see where it fits. And a, a big thanks to, to Hannah for the invitation and to the Ash Center. Um, I had the chance to have lunch and speak a little bit with uh, the mayor uh, a little while ago. And, uh, I'm also excited. It's really interesting some of the things that are taking place in Somerville. Uh, and I enjoyed especially learning about the Resistat program that they're doing. Uh, you know, what I've learned a lot, and certainly in New York City, there's uh, much going on in terms of using data, uh, sort of big data in thinking about cities. But at least as we get it there, it's sort of presented as, you know, you're either in the big data camp or you're in the citizen engagement and participation and involvement and in, in including people in government camp and the idea that those things should go deeply together, uh, which seems obvious, not always uh, obvious to us in, in New York City. So I'm excited to, it was great to see a little more of that. Um, I'm still relatively new to elected office. Uh, I spent uh, 10 years running a community development uh, corporation, the Fifth Avenue Committee that uh, builds affordable housing, organizes tenants, help people get jobs. And then for five years ran the Pratt Center for Community Development, which is a, a kind of land use, affordable housing, community economic development, think and do tank uh, in Brooklyn that works with community groups around the city on participatory planning, land use processes. And uh, some of these tensions that I think we're talking about between grassroots engagement and involvement and broader citywide planning issues, we wrestled with there. So worked hard to sort of engage with residents in developing their own plans but we're also the main advocates for the city's fair share system so that the siting of municipal infrastructure, both the things you want and the things you don't want, uh, is done in some way that attends to equity citywide. So I think some of these questions about how to engage people at the grassroots level really involve community voice and vision in shaping what happens, but with attention to broader issues of equity and fairness are, are really important, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here to talk about it. Um, still a relatively recent elected official, 
uh, was elected in 2009, started serving in 2010, um, and brought that passion for community engagement uh, into office. Uh, and as I've said, uh, while I think the Bloomberg administration has done uh, quite a few good things, uh, their attention to uh, equity issues or to genuine community uh, participation in, in planning and shaping the city the, are not its strong suits. Uh, so I'm very pleased to co-chair the City Council's Progressive Caucus uh, with Melissa Mark Favorito, the councilwoman from East Harlem. And we've had some really good successes you may have seen. We just were able to pass the paid sick days bill uh, in New York City, extending paid sick days to uh, about a million uh, low-wage New Yorkers. We passed a living wage bill. Actually, I like this. You know, in New York City, there's the minimum wage. There's what we call the living wage. And then there's what we call the family sustaining wage. Uh, the living wage bill we passed is nowhere near enough to live on, even though it's substantially above the minimum wage. Uh, anyway, we can go into that in questions if people are interested. And, and a lot of other work on immigrant detention on, um, right now, a, a big process on a, a big a campaign around uh, police profiling and, and trying to pass a bill that would prohibit profiling by the NYPD around both stop and frisk and surveillance of Muslim communities. Um, I also brought to office a real passion for uh, real inclusive processes and have tried to just use those in my own service. Uh, the first thing we did actually was at the moment uh, back in 2009, uh, we were still seeing an awful lot of stalled development sites in the neighborhood, things that had begun during the boom and then uh, left their neighbors kind of hanging with construction fences. So we just put up a big online portal uh, trying to combine what the buildings department had, which was really not anywhere near most of the sites, with what people were seeing on their blocks and actually got the buildings department to change the way they kept track of stalled development sites. Uh, probably the biggest and most controversial thing of my service uh, has been a bike lane. Uh, the Prospect Park West bike lane, of, of all things, became like a giant international flashpoint. It was covered in The Guardian, and uh, uh, that was one time when I did stand with Mayor Bloomberg and, and our wonderful Transportation Commissioner, Jeanette Sadikan. But there, too, we, we did a big kind of survey process, and 3,000 people filled out a 13-question survey, three of them requiring like detailed fill-in-the-blank answers. Uh, is sort of in both to defend and support, but also make some changes and improvements to that bike lane. Um, and I'll, I'll pause just at the minute. You know, I, uh, I'm going to talk mostly about participatory budgeting, but the experience of going through Hurricane Sandy and thinking about what it looks like to sort of try to build communities of support in the aftermath and looking forward um, has also really shaped how I've been thinking about things recently. And in those days after the hurricane, especially, um, uh, both existing kind of social networks and community organizations and new social networking tools were just essential to kind of getting fundamental information and relief to, uh, to hard-hit communities, sometimes in collaboration with government and sometimes really totally independent of government. And we're trying to build on that to think more seriously about what it means to build a, uh, a resilient city uh, amidst climate change. Um, but the reason that I'm here and I'm so happy about it is uh, that I've been one of the council members who has uh, brought participatory budgeting to New York City. Um, uh, I want to recognize and acknowledge and thank Josh Lerner, who's here, who's the uh, founder and executive director of the Participatory Budgeting uh, Project, uh, a group that has worked across the country to sort of get people involved in participatory budgeting and so uh, acknowledge his role in, in, uh, in most importantly the work, but also in, in the presentation. So, um, uh, mostly I want to focus on what's happened in New York City, but let me give you a little bit of background on, um, on sort of participatory budgeting in general. 
Um, lots of places to focus on participation in government. Um, what budgets do is, uh, in some ways, strip away the rhetoric. You're spending the money on what you're spending the money on. Uh, people are paying attention, and they know it's their money at some level. And so the opportunities to uh, engage at a really deep level of participation in some ways extend uh, more deeply than what you can sometimes see. Some of you have probably seen this before. I think this is one of the things that kind of gets taught in, uh, I think of this as Maimonides' ladder of, of Tanaka for the, the Jews in the room. But um, uh, lots of different ways of engaging people in participation um, and in budgets as well. Obviously, some of what you're going to be able, you know, you're going to do is have hearings. You have the budget and everyone gets to come on and give their three minutes and say, please don't cut this youth program or we don't want to pay that increased sales tax or you know, you're tricking us by saying that you're finding small businesses for health violations, but actually it's just a budget uh, trick. So you listen, uh, you can do some kinds of consultation, uh, these online games that challenge you to sort of spend what the city uh, has and, and no more. Uh, but what's neat about participatory budgeting in particular is it really does put control in the hands of uh, the, the, the people who are participating. Um, and I guess that's just where to start is what is it? Uh, participatory budgeting is a democratic process in which members of the community, and we'll talk about how we define that, but it can go beyond uh, registered voters or in our case even beyond citizens, directly decide how to send some part of a public budget. Um, now it's, it's not the whole thing. Uh, you know, in New York City, as you'll see, we each have put up $1 million of city capital funds out of a $70 billion budget, um, but there are places where people get as big as you know, 10, 15, even 20% of the budget. Um, but it's a real decision. You structure the process, as you'll see, so that the proposals and the ideas and the projects are coming from people, but the decisions about what gets funded are being made by people by voting, uh, and they're really making that decision. Uh, and what gets said through the process is actually what happens. Um, it happens uh, as an annual cycle. We've just finished year two, and I'll walk through that a little bit. Oh, I forgot my material. All right, well, I'll pass my, my materials out in a minute. Um, I have the ballot for you that we just used last week. Um, uh, you know, when people first hear this, I think they're inclined to think of it like a reality television show or a game show or one of those sort of online voting competitions where you go every day and try to vote as many times as possible. Um, but it's not a popularity contest. It's structured more like uh, real, genuine local democracy with an election, um, an annual cycle. Um, and it works like this. At the beginning of the process, residents brainstorm ideas. Uh, a set of what we call budget delegates, people who volunteer, uh, but uh, to take those projects, figure out which ones are feasible, develop them into proposals. The proposals go on a ballot. Um, some set of residents vote, um, and then the top uh, vote-getting projects are the ones that get funded up to the amount that has been uh, set aside. Um, as Archon said, it's, it's been taking place all around the world. It started in Porto Alegre, Brazil, more than 20 years ago, um, and uh, mostly has taken place outside of North America, so Latin America especially, also Asia, um, Europe, and Africa, and only very recently come to North America. Um, you can do it in many different ways. Uh, so there are places where public housing authorities have done it, uh, cities, counties, states. Uh, you can do it within schools or some colleges that have, have done it. 
Um, so Porto Alegre, um, as you can see, this is one of the places where they now allocate as much as 20% of the budget. Um, in Porto Alegre, it was really done quite consciously uh, to achieve more equity in the budgeting process. Uh, it went with, as was mentioned, a change in government, and people were trying to really reposition the values of the city uh, and reposition where funding got spent. Um, I think one of the things we can talk about a little more is uh, the tension between trying to make sure the equity goals get achieved and what happens when particular groups of voters uh, sort of mobilized for their favorite projects and uh, who that advantages. Um, North America's late to the game, uh, but, uh, and of course it started in Canada, uh, in originally Guelph, Ontario, and then Toronto's Public Housing Authority and in Montreal. Um, Alderman Joe Moore uh, in the 49th Ward in Chicago uh, started doing participatory budgeting in 2009 with some uh, discretionary funding. In Chicago, like in New York, their aldermen, our city council members, um, are allocated some pot of money within the broader budget process that you can specifically allocate for capital needs in your district. I don't know if you've been reading the New York City uh, papers these days. Those discretionary funds in New York City have tripped up some of my less ethical colleagues recently in, in very awful corruption scandals. I mean, really terrible betrayals of the public trust um, and occasioned a real debate about whether there should be discretionary funding uh, at all, uh, because there's no doubt that in some cases it can tempt people who ethical, ethical standards are, are very low. But unless you have something like this, it's really hard to get uh, a lot of projects close to the ground funded. Um, and what, uh, what we were excited by was that possibility, if it's going to be projects that are close to the ground, why not engage people who are close to the ground in, uh, uh, in making those decisions? So in 2011, uh, four of us decided to start doing it, and I'll have a little more to say about that in just a, couple, in just a minute. Um, and I'm pleased to say that now in uh, Vallejo, California, they're going to do the first citywide process in the United States. Uh, ours is district by district, um, and that has some, some upside, but also some down. Uh, Vallejo, California is just going to have their vote next month for the first citywide process uh, in North America, and, and there's other cities considering it as well. Um, I think I'm going to skip over uh, Toronto and New York. I mentioned Vallejo. One nice thing about Vallejo is they are doing it with a, this piece of a new sales tax that they voted for. Uh, so this money that they voted to tax themselves, they're then also going to have a hand in deciding where the money gets spent. And a big part of what I think is so good about the process is at a moment of low trust in government and certainly low trust in elected officials, um, the idea that you make the connection between the resources that we're putting on the table together uh, and the problems that need solving and the projects that we believe take the city forward um, is pretty compelling. Um, uh, I'm going to move through this part quickly because I want to talk about the New York process, but there's a lot of reasons to do it. Um, one is budgeting is big and messy and people's eyes glaze over, uh, but getting people engaged and really seeing some of the challenges, why do things cost so much, how do we make these priorities, what's the relationship between where the money's coming from and where it's going to, it's a really good way to get uh, education around the budget and you can tie it to some of the feedback people give on the broader budget issues as well, and people learn a lot and get a lot more engaged than they would if you just said, please come down to City Hall uh, for the budget hearing. Um, the, the deeper democracy 
what I thought when we started doing this was, people will like the, I get to decide part of it, that kind of, you know, I'm being empowered. But one thing that I've really found is it really calls up in people their uh, sense of sort of stewardship of the shared public realm. Uh, people, turns out, really care a lot about our parks, our schools, our streets, our libraries, and want opportunities to act as stewards of them, and don't get too many. Uh, and this process asks for it, and uh, you really see it in the ways people volunteer, work in groups, propose projects, and even when they're faced with a ballot where they thought they were coming out to vote for their own school's new tech center, um, wind up voting for projects that have a much bigger kind of shared public footprint. Um, th there's no doubt that the projects that have gotten funded in the last two years in my district are better than the projects that I was funding on my own um, uh, because I think a lot more people had a hand in them, thought about them, we got a lot more feedback. Um, and again, I think uh, structured thoughtfully so that you make sure you're engaging uh, constituencies who might otherwise be disenfranchised, you can wind up spending in a, in a fairer way uh, as well. Um, uh, on this last point, accountability and transparency, um, I mentioned what's been going on in New York. Um, it has been so wonderful for me this week when there's been all this press uh, about the betrayal of public trust by elected officials. Participatory budgeting has been pointed to many times as a positive alternative, so it's not just yes or no on discretionary funding and are all elected officials corrupt or not, but what are some ways in which we might have real transparent and accountable uh, processes. Um, uh, so uh, on New York City, uh, in 2010, I guess, um, Alderman Joe Moore from Chicago came and gave a few talks in, in New York City. Um, I was actually invited, as the mayor is here, to be a respondent. Uh, uh, and of course, after that, people came up and said, hey, Brad, that's a great idea. When are we starting here? Um, uh, and not that anything like that would ever happen in here or in Somerville. But, um, uh, but we decided, and we took a long time, I have to say. We got 51 colleagues, and we talked about it with a lot of them. And there are a lot of reasons why people worried that it uh, might or might not make sense, and how could we structure it to work in New York City. Um, but four of us, uh, three who are members of the Progressive Caucus, uh, Jumani Williams, Melissa Mark Favorito, and myself, and we recruited one Republican as well, Eric Ulrich, and it really has been a fully bipartisan effort, um, uh, something that we're really proud of, decided to take some piece of our discretionary funding pot. Generally, council members in New York City have had from two and a half million up to five or seven or eight million dollars in this discretionary capital for local parks, schools, street projects, um, uh, physical city capital projects. And we decided that would be a good place to, to try this out. Um, our expense discretionary pots are much smaller and tend to be kind of small renewal grants for existing nonprofit community organizations, whereas capital tends to go for individual projects. Um, and we thought it made a lot of sense to do there. So we each committed at least a million dollars from our capital budgets. Um, we teamed up with the Participatory Budgeting Project and a partner in New York City, Community Voices Heard, brought a citywide steering committee together to try to set the rules so that all four districts could follow the same set of rules as much as possible for who would vote. Um, uh, engaged uh, graduate students and academics actually have to, uh, in the first year, there were several meetings where the ratio of researchers and graduate students to constituents was troublingly high, but, um, 
but as a result, we actually have really good data, so uh, we are pretty proud of it. Um, uh, I think I mentioned most of this. Oh yeah, so we um, opened up voting beyond uh, those registered to vote and even beyond citizens. You, it's not a, we'll come back to the vote in a minute, but it's not a sort of board of, uh, board of elections uh, uh, election. We run it ourselves, and so what you have to do is just bring some evidence you live in the district, you know, a note from school or a, or a utility bill. Um, and this year, we just finished our second year, we decided to lower the voting age from 18 to 16 so we could engage more young people um, and get a couple of high schools involved in the, in the process as well, which uh, has really made a big difference. Um, so the process works like this, and it really does take um, uh, this full length of time. You have neighborhood assemblies uh, in the fall. We did five or six in my district, and there's some other districts that did as many as 10 or 12, really going a lot of places asking people what do you need, what are the projects you think about. Um, you can also give ideas online, in the mail, over the phone. Then people volunteer to be uh, budget delegates, take all those ideas and shape them into proposals. We'll look at that more in just, a, in just a minute. Feed that back through a project expo. They go on the ballot, and this is where, um, actually I'm gonna pass them out now because I meant to have them on the table before, but Yes, we're going to, we didn't write void on each of these, but we just had the election, so you can't uh, commit voter fraud. Uh, <laughs> um, the ideas go on the ballot, and then you have an election. Uh, so we'll come back to that in just a moment. So just a few kind of images from that. The, my district is a really wonderful and interesting district, um, uh, kind of the heart of Brownstone, Brooklyn. In about you know two thirds sort of uh, upper middle class you know largely white families very engaged in the democratic process very progressive, but I also represent a big Bangladeshi uh, Bangladeshi Muslim community in the Kensington neighborhood and uh, Orthodox Jewish and Hasidic community in Borough Park and we did outreach in all those neighborhoods to make sure people could give ideas. Um, budget delegates volunteer to shape the projects uh, and debate them. They work with all of the city agencies uh, because a big part of figuring out, we have to figure out not only what people are excited about, but what projects are feasible, what the agencies will build, what are within our cost range, what can get done in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, one slightly terrifying thing as an elected official is to give up that power for dialogue between constituents and the agencies because I still have to work with all those agencies on many, many constituent issues. Um, I can talk a little more about that after in response to questions, um, but there have been some counterintuitive things where, for example, the School Construction Authority and the MTA, who are the biggest bureaucracies, have in some ways been the most engaged with our, with our budget delegates, and, and that has been encouraging. So they work with those agencies, figure out what's feasible. Um, so last year there were you know, nearly 900 ideas suggested. Uh, of those, most weren't eligible. Most weren't capital eligible. People were recommending expense funding or intersection traffic calming where DOT said that intersection doesn't warrant it. But more than 200 of the projects were eligible. From those, these delegate committees had to debate and choose which to go on the ballot. They chose 20 projects uh, and seven were funded. You have this year's ballot which has 24 projects uh, of which six uh, were funded uh, in the vote last week. Uh, you have the ballot. Uh, 
This is a scene last year from the Windsor Terrace Library where 700 people voted. Some of them, because it was our first year running an election, had to wait in line more than a half hour. Uh, but almost no one left. And this year, we managed to smooth the voting process a bit. Um, but it's gone up. Last year, 2,200 people voted in my district. Um, and this year, it went up to 2,800. Now, it's a big district. I represent 160,000 people. So you know, measured as a regular election, that's not huge. But measured as a space of civic engagement and activity where people are coming together to improve their neighborhoods, I would say there's not a lot of places where nearly 3,000 people in one council district are coming out to do it. And citywide this year, more than 10,000 people were still tallying. There might as be as many as 12 or even 15,000 people came out to vote in this process. Um, I'll just say a word about the top two vote-getting projects from last year, and this is mirrored in this year's results as well. Uh, the top vote-getting project last year were some just hideous bathrooms in a neighborhood public school, uh, a low-income school. It had turned out that at the neighborhood assemblies, the school projects that got rec uh, recommended were mostly from middle-class PTAs. But the delegates decided they wanted to reach out to all the schools that had relatively high uh, free lunch population. And PS 124 had the delegates come and see these bathrooms, which were so bad that basically the kindergartners couldn't use them and were, like, anyways, a little embarrassing. Um, and even though they didn't have like a, a big school or a big um, uh, PTA that did a lot of organizing, people across the district saw it, uh, thought it was outrageous, and voted. Um, at sort of the other end of the practical to creative spectrum, the second most vote-getting project last year was a community composting facility. Uh, my district obviously has many uh, folks who care deeply about environmental issues. It's also true that New York City spends $100 million a year landfilling organic waste that could be going to compost. Uh, and people worked with the sanitation department, which is taking a while to bring around to see the value of, uh, of composting and, and dealing with organics, but did in dialogue with this uh, group of people. And it got put on the ballot. And sanitation is giving us this lot, and uh, the, that project is moving forward. So you can see the balance of very practical and somewhat more imaginative uh, projects that come out. Um, I'm going to leave some of the information on sort of the research to Holly. Uh, we did some fairly, because we had all those graduate students and we surveyed every voter, um, we know that the, uh, not only did we get a lot of people involved, but it was quite diverse. So uh, people of color, women, low-income uh, residents, non-English speakers, all came out in, the dis in those four districts in higher rates than they traditionally have come out in municipal elections. In my district, the Bangladeshi community came out at almost twice the rate that they have participated in uh, municipal elections. And people got much more engaged, people who had not been part of community organizations uh, wound up uh, much more involved. Um, just to give a little uh, you know, uh, quiver in your arrow, if you do go try to persuade elected officials to do this, um, it works well. Uh, Alderman Moore tells the story that uh, he actually almost lost his primary before he started doing participatory budgeting, and then afterwards he won overwhelmingly. But you get a lot of good press coverage. Um, more than that, uh, people really like it, and I've just gotten a lot of wonderful feedback by it. Um, we just finished year two. After seeing how well it worked, four more of our colleagues jumped in. So we were able to commit over $10 million. And we're in a big election year right now. And many candidates are committing to do participatory budgeting right and left. 
Um, you know, there's candidate forums, and as soon as one says they'll do it, then they all say they're doing it. So I think it's going to grow significantly next year and the year after as those new candidates come into office, and we'll see whether it gets to citywide, but I think it will definitely get to uh, significantly bigger. Um, just to conclude, there are some challenges, and I think it's important to be honest about them. It takes a lot of time to do well, staff time, volunteer time, nonprofit time. If you want to outreach to communities that don't ordinarily participate, um, you know, you've got to have the ballots translated into Bengali and Spanish and Yiddish and have speakers who speak those languages. It's a lot of work. Um, if you do it at a district level rather than a citywide level, Community building can be challenging. No one cares about the 39th district except me. It's six different neighborhoods. It has no uh, identity. There's a gap, of course, between what people want and what they cost, so the money is, is an issue. Um, some of the issues that Archon mentioned and that I spoke about at the beginning, uh, connecting this to broader framework of strategic planning, what's the infrastructure that we need to sustain growth, what's equity look like across the whole city, we don't really have a good comprehensive planning framework in New York City to fit it into anyway. Um, but if we did, I think we would have to figure, figure a lot of that out. Um, but the upsides, I think, are, are really significant. And I've hit them throughout the process. The Times last year in a great article on this process called it revolutionary civics in action. My favorite quote this year, actually, that was on the radio last weekend came from a resident in, in the Rockaways. Eric Ulrich's district is in the Rockaways, which was hit so badly by the hurricane, and they asked him, does it really make sense uh, to do it this year after you've been so uh, decimated? And he said, you know, it's sort of like a tree growing up after a forest fire uh, to be able to kind of till the soil of our community in the wake of this uh, hurricane. And I, I think what it reminded people, it, we saw in New York City in those days after the hurricane, a real extraordinary coming together of communities of support. And if you haven't read this, this wonderful book by an author uh, Rebecca Solnit, who wrote this uh, marvelous book called Paradise Built in Hell, uh, the remarkable communities that arise in the face of disaster. And she looks at five uh, natural disasters, starting with the San Francisco fire and going through Hurricane Katrina, um, and at these very powerful communities of purpose that come together uh, for both relief and rebuilding work. Um, and I think in this moment of climate change, where we need to be thinking differently about what resilient communities look like, about how we invest in infrastructure in the face of growth, um, figuring out ways to connect people uh, and, and, and call up that sense of purpose without crisis or disaster is a real challenge of government. Government's only gonna work if people believe that it is the space in which we collectively solve problems uh, and participatory budgeting, uh, what I think it does best is helps people see government as a vehicle through which they and their neighbors can get together, confront problems, come up with some ideas, and have some tangible hand in how that works. Um, and while there's no doubt a debate about sort of what's the upper bound, you know, what decisions could you make this way, engaging people in that process helps them think about it in a, in a much deeper way than they would otherwise uh, so I'm excited to uh, hear from the mayor and engage in your questions and think not only how we can do more participatory budgeting, but how we can use it as a way uh, to engage people in government in this much more uh, inclusive and democratic way. Thank you. Well, good evening. Uh, for the record, I am a proud alumnus of the Kennedy School. <laughs> I'm so busy in civic engagement, I haven't had a chance to update my website. But, uh, 
uh, I really enjoyed my time here, and uh, I see Lieutenant Carabino from the Summer Police Department. He actually got me to apply here after he did a year, uh, and really enjoyed his experience. I often get the opportunity to come back and speak about uh, municipal leadership, the challenges of uh, urban communities, uh, innovations. We've been able to craft or steal from communities, and I'm sure I'm going to steal some great ideas from Councilman Lander after our great discussion today. Um, we pride ourselves in civic engagement uh, in Somerville, uh, but, uh, and because we strongly believe in a responsive, participatory, and open government. Uh, clearly, participatory budgeting is a very powerful uh, tool for both effective governing and for increasing civic engagement. I am really impressed, I'm sure you are, in learning of the success in Chicago, uh, what's occurred in Brazil, and what the council member is doing in New York City along with his colleagues. And it's critical because, because there's so many benefits of it. We talk about community building. It, it really lends to building that social fabric. I, I love what the council member stated, you know, you know really sparking that stewardship of the shared public realm, getting people vested in the decision-making of a community from the ground level up, earning their trust as policymakers and decision-makers and governing officials. And uh, uh, I think that's fantastic, and I commend what those communities do are doing. And uh, I'm sure I'm going to gain a lot from our conversation this afternoon and this evening to understand how we can learn from that and build it on top of our current civic engagement efforts in Somerville. First, let me tell you about some of the efforts that we've undertaken and what is occurring in Somerville. First, the show of hands. Who lives in Somerville? All right. We'll talk later. Okay. <laughs> uh, we've, uh, have any of you been to a Resistat meeting or participated in that? Oh, excellent. Okay. Uh, any of you called 311? Uh, have any of you filled out a happiness survey? And uh, how can I, how would you measure your subjective happiness this evening? You have a big we're quite high. Okay. You know, we've, uh, in Somerville, we've faced uh, you know, two main challenges in our efforts to meaningfully engage residents in discussions and, and, and real decision making. Uh, one I would say is the top one is reaching the underserved populations in our community. The next is, uh, you know, how do you balance what we're doing with diverse opinions? We're a very dynamic city. Um, I mean, we have everyone there. We, have very, we speak 52 languages. Uh, we're socioeconomically diverse. We are we're experiencing what New York City is too, that the biggest demographic shift this country's seen since mid-century where baby boomers, millennials like myself, and the hipsters and abnormals like many of you are coming to the urban core and want to experience vibrant urban lifestyle centers such as Somerville or, or Brooklyn. Um, with that, you know, a very dynamic, eclectic mix with a diverse opinions and I'll say it sometimes, nimbyism, you know, and Again, Somerville is diverse, and we're the most densely populated city in New England. Um, and despite you know, hiring translators and, and interpreters and engaging community groups uh, like so many other cities, it's still a struggle to address the many barriers that keep our large you know, Spanish, Portuguese, uh, Haitian Creole-speaking uh, populations away from our public meetings and processes. And sometimes that has a, it isn't a language barrier. It's a cultural barrier to really bring them in and get them engaged. Uh, we've launched a pilot program with liaisons, with our resident staff program to go out and meet with those residents to understand you know, what issues non-native speakers are most concerned about, you know, what new approaches we should be taking to engage them 
You know, where does that cultural divide we have to bridge and what channels of communication work best for them and whether that's you know, text messaging or, or neighborhood walkabouts. But you know, as for NIMBYism, uh, sometimes you have to get creative. And in some of them, we now have an alternate to NIMBY and we call that MIMBY. That's called Mare in My Backyard. <laughs> this is actually, this is one. And we can't guarantee you any one of those well-famous people, but you can get a Somerville alternative, me, to come to your house, to have a conversation, to drink your own micro-brewed beer, to cook your meal, and really to try to bake that, break that barrier of institutional you know, government. The city government's here, the mayor's there, and understand, help us understand who our constituents are. Do they really see the promise of Somerville the way we do? The, do we, have we identified the challenges the same way they have? And, trying to get in a social conversation. This has been the most simple, easiest to execute way of engagement and most popular and the most fun I've ever had. Um, I may have to have my liver checked by the end of it <laughs> because of some pretty good events I've gone to, but really engaging a diverse population in our city and understanding who they are. And, and, and in our role as public officials, that can escape us, it really can. And we tend to end up at public meetings where everybody who loves something is over here and they'll speak for us. Everybody who hates something is over there. And that really doesn't represent who the people you represent are, who's living, working, playing, and raising a family there. But I want to talk about three bedrock civic engagement tools that are really the underpinnings of our, our many efforts to involve residents and shape and uh, some of them. Now, who can recognize this? All right, this is a pothole. So if you're guessing that, you're correct. You might think of it as a pothole and a problem. We think of this type of issue, constituent issue, a service request as an opportunity. Opportunity not to deal with a problem, to engage, to service a call, to get the pace, tone, and feeling of a community. Um, when you first experience you know, municipal government or services, it, it's most times you're either getting a parking ticket, you're filing for site, or you're calling 311 in some of all. So what is your experience? Uh, are we servicing your call? Are we truly understanding your need? Uh, and you quickly learn that if you engage with the city and by calling 311 or making your request online, you can make and see tangible changes or have your request service, no matter how small or how big they are. And we do this on average of just under uh, 25,000 times a year. Uh, 25,000 calls for work orders for items like potholes, graffiti, tree trims, information, or crosswalk improvements come in per year and we act on them. And that's an Impressive lesson about government, government responsiveness. You know, when I became an alderman, I mean, I, I, alderman, yes, in, two, in 1996, and still as mayor in 2004, if you wanted to engage with the city of Somerville, and you called, my God, the maze of bureaucracy you were caught in. And we had no idea who we were servicing. We couldn't tell you the pace and tone and concerns of those calls. We didn't service calls. Now imagine if English was not your first language. I, I was an alderman, I wouldn't call City Hall for a, for a service request. And uh, we have a full understanding every day of who's engaging with us, what the trends of those requests are, what the common concerns come in to that constituent service line are. And that's really important for us. So we're building up a history of customer service and servicing everyone as a particular consumer in our city. Now, we also have a very thriving, active, and diverse social media outreach network. Uh, we have uh, more than 25 feeds for young people, for old people, uh, and everyone in between. 
in uh, our monthly reach just on the city's Facebook page is now averaging 70,000 to 100,000 unique individuals. So that's, uh, that's not repeats, those are unique IP addresses. That's more than our population. And, and, but why are so many people paying attention? I mean, it's not like we're giving away free Coke or Nike uh, on, on the ads. No, it's because we really see this new media, social media, it isn't so new anymore, but social media as a conversation, just as we see 311 as a conversation. We don't believe in taking calls. We believe in that engagement and servicing that call and engaging in the issue and conversation. It becomes a direct conduct between the residents, uh, the city staff, my office, and actually me. And sometimes if you call 311, by the way, you might catch me on the phone. I do tell you one time. Well, once in a while. Our mantra, though, it, it's really, it's not a billboard. It's a dialogue. It's that conversation that's important. So these ideas and concerns come in. Uh, we take them seriously. We even value the chatter that's even directly posted to us. It's kind of a big brother the, in the progressive sense. Well, we monitor your chatter. We understand what's going on and see if we can jump in and be participating in that chatter on many different feeds. Uh, our social me uh, media manager updates uh, me, almost daily at staff meetings, and what residents are posting about in general. So we're up to sp speed and up to date on what people care about most. You know, from what's the best restaurant to go to in some of them, what are some of the neighborhood concerns they have, why they're pissed off at the mayor, all kinds of stuff. Really exciting. And, and sometimes it's as simple as, uh, again, again, where you can get the best meal, the best donut at Union Square Donuts, what that is. Um, but it's really important because it permits a certain criticism and constructive engagement with, with, with city government that we can participate in. And people actually can see some tangible results. Again, we're using social media for positive resident requested change in a dialogue that's so important to helping to shape uh, policy. But we're not just focusing on social media. Uh, we've also, in our efforts to utilize data, all kinds of data from our operational data, uh, performance data, uh, to push that data down to the grassroots level into residents' hand um, as part of our resistat meetings. This is an opportunity. It's not a typical neighborhood meeting. It's getting data from what the, what the type of, how many traffic violations are going in your neighborhood to what our investment is and, and the built environment in your neighborhood or from roadway improvements to parks to um, quality of life data, uh, crime data, and having you engaged, challenge you to engage in a probative conversation of how we see and what that data tells us. Challenging you to shape the agenda at every meeting and ask us for particular data requests and residents actually shape that agenda every meeting. So we don't come there and say we're gonna talk about XYZ every day. The residents have that data at their fingertips. And, and we see more, more various types of requests for various forms of data coming in at every meeting, and attendance has quadrupled in the last year. And these, again, are gateway meetings, and we cover a lot of topics, initiatives, and concerns, and, and again, the residents do shape the agenda. The idea is to draw them into the many other opportunities in the city as well, so that, that, that we offer to engage, and really important to have that social bonding and have that community building. Um, and it's been really, um, it's been transformative uh, for the community as well to see the popularity of that. So um, that's just a sampling. We offer, and it's important to offer various and numerous points of entry, uh, if you will, because we know every resident has different interests. 
different needs and, uh, and different schedule challenges, um, which is why I'm excited about another possibility when we think about participatory budgeting. You cannot be too redundant and in the conduits you offer your residents to get engaged and get involved. You cannot be too redundant in how you communicate and enter that dialogue with them. Uh, if you come to Summer Vision, which was our community comprehensive planning effort, you might have been there for two years, or you might take a five-minute survey. Uh, we have an opportunity for everyone to speak up at every different level. And those are real, meaningful opportunities to engage in Somerville in a, in a way that, and it, those opportunities even outweigh the number of Dunkin' Donuts we have in the city right now, so it's pretty impressive. But we also, uh, and I've alluded to it earlier, introduced another very unusual way uh, to enable residents to have impact, and that's, we were the first city in the world to actually undertake or conduct a happiness survey. And we're actually going through round two. And this was done in partnership with Harvard University. Professor Daniel Gilbert, who's a happiness guru, a very happy man. And uh, we wanted to understand in our, in our efforts to engage in that dialogue, one, not only what your opinion, one, your satisfaction or opinion is to city services or living in the city of Somerville, but is there a correlation between customer satisfaction and subjective happiness. And it really introdu introduced us to an incredible amount of data that helped us understand you know, how policies can affect your subjective happiness and our efforts also to adopt the well-being index, which again will be the first city in the world to do that. But again, real meaningful opportunities to engage in some of all uh, are really important to us. And um, we found correlations with city services. And these, are, and these surveys were random get back to that, these services were random, and, uh, and, and the satisfaction with city services averaged around 7.7, .7, in case you were wondering. So every, out of 10, it was a very happy, a very satisfied constituency, and a very happy constituency as well. But understanding what you do with that information, and how you can continue to engage and invite people to engage with you, and again, how are we meeting and reaching every population, and understanding their satisfaction or dissatisfaction with services, and how that affects their subjective happiness is important. I mean, we are tapping into the subconscious preferences to make real world changes so that we're really uh, pumped up about that. But having that continuum uh, of engagement is important. We like to have 360 degrees of communication and a mile deep of engagement with every resident in the community. Uh, and it's important. We start with, again, 311 and social media and our resident meetings. We open up the process to numerous engagement processes and initiatives. We top it off with scientifically based uh, random sample happiness survey, and it's all by the, uh, guided by a uh, core belief that you cannot over-communicate. And again, perhaps uh, participatory budgeting will become the next piece, important piece of our tool set. And I will say, um, from some of those point, my point, uh, all these efforts to open those doors up and actually reach out and pull people in has guided so many groundbreaking policy efforts it's shaped us into better decision makers and better leaders. It's earned the trust of the people who have invested in our community financially or by bringing or raising their families there. And it's actually about thinking, people thinking about, this is perhaps where I should stay. It's creating that social network that culturally in this country has really dissipated. And that community building that is so important uh, to building a sustainable society in the city that we, are, we have the charge of guiding forward. So I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you here tonight. 
I hope, uh, I look forward to some of your questions and uh, hope to learn from my colleague from New York City. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much. That was terrific. And a big thank you to Hannah and to Josh and Archon for their considerable enthusiasm. I'll make this very brief so that we can do some questions. I really echo your sentiments that you can't multiply enough the opportunities to engage with citizens. And that's what I saw with participatory budgeting is that you can be both broad and deep with how you engage with people. And in terms of bringing out non-traditional populations, both on traditional indicators such as socioeconomic and gender and race, but also on the indicators of how frequently have they participated before. So bringing out people for whom this was their first major civic engagement and people whom have been involved in their community boards for 30 years. Even amongst those people, when I interviewed them, they said this was the single most impactful civic experience of their life. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, because we actually saw how the sausage got made. It was messy and it was complicated, but we were part of that process. So there's a huge civic education component that goes along with this. And one other element of participatory budgeting that is very important speaks to your idea of two-way dialogue. And that works on many different levels. When citizens volunteer to be budget delegates, they have deliberations and discussions that are moderated and they have back and forth and they have disagreements. And it's not always nice and pleasant, but it's very real. And I think that helps foster communities. It helps foster citizenship. And another thing that you saw, council member, was just your relationships with the other council members. How do we make the rules together for a process that is outside the traditional framework of governance? That within itself is a fascinating part of learning about you know, civic engagement. This has been a production of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School.